Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody, uh, just a minute before 8 o'clock, but by the time this gets to you on the interweb, it'll be as near as makes no difference, 8 o'clock UK time, 3 o'clock on the eastern seaboard of the United States of America. Welcome along to with me, Motorsport. Uh, this is Series 16, episode number 8. It's the one where Ferrari have finally made the announcement that we were talking about last year. We'll get to that in a minute. And on a packed programme tonight, Tim Gray, our executive producer up in London, we have what? Uh, we have all the usual features. I bet uh, we don't. We've got such a lot of it in tonight. We've got a big interview. That's a usual feature. We'll be joined True. by uh, some of our usual uh, cohorts. Nick Damon, Ben Constant-Jewis, Andrew Cotton and Declan Brennan. Yes, true. Uh, Gary Watkins will be here to talk about Tom Christensen's book. Yes. And uh, we have yes, a champion true. in the first hour. Oh, do we? Excellent. Yes. Uh, but we... the first champion to be crowned of... No, not the first champion to be crowned oh. in uh, 2021. I believe the third champion to be crowned in 2021. Right. OK. Uh, all good. Uh, let's have a quick look at Atspec Entertainment. Hello to Tron Valentine, who's tuning in live this evening. Uh, also, hello to Brody, who's on the podcast. James O'Donnell, Daniel Summerskill, listening live for the first time in a while Jonathan Main G Great Racing suggesting we might need halibut oil and mallet and some determination but if we have all those everything will fit this evening you might be I have a might mallet. be right excellent I've got the halibut oil today. excellent Simon K uh, listening in tonight as well the real slim clerky uh, as well Mark Bowley right turn lover Mark O'Barrensward Uncle Kevin Kevin Payne Safe Phil, Chris Suku, Heath Giles, listening live this morning on the rate to work. I'm saving the rest for the trip to Mount Panorama Circuit uh, later this weekend. I'm very envious that uh, there are... I thought Dave Stillwell's heading up there as well. I saw a tweet from him. Chris Smith, Jake Parrott, uh, Law 60s and Sunny in Virginia, laptop on the patio, spare ribs on the smoker. Uh, there's envy. I had a very lovely seafood gratin tonight, but that actually sounds... Very good. No apologies from Oliver Giles. Daniel Bowd listening live for the first time in a while. Looking forward to what is undoubtedly a packed show. Hello, Alexander. Uh, Orkins in tonight. So is Paul Markart. Uh, so excited to hear about the Tom Kerr book. Been reading it. It's brilliant. I read that in two and a half hours in one sitting. It was that good. Jack Martin uh, listening in for the long drive to Mount Panorama. Can't wait to hear all the news. I suspect there might be some uh, news uh, from supercars in on the grid tomorrow. Creelsey will be along in a wee while to tell us about that. He's going to Porsche Works. too. 
Is he? Yeah. Excellent. Blue Fiends listening in from the Porsche workshop. Nick says, anything on Midway Motorsport tonight? Yeah, just a bit. Stephen Gardner's AFA. Uh, apologies for absence, that is. David Faulkner, present for the first hour. Work stuff in hour two. Uh, uh, Tom Aitken, Simon Hoff, Ted the Toyman. Uh, final settlement of his land, 10 minutes from the bend. Expecting that today. Ian McCarthy, Serafina, Sarah Rigby. Hello. Not long home from a busy clinic. Thanks for your hard work, Sarah. Jim, I am. Uh, Brian. I nearly read that as Brian. That's lovely how I do it. Mike Chanel. Not sure whether we'll have anything to talk about tonight. And Miles Cook. I've tuned in live instead of the podcast. Hoping you're out, out of the country to join Club Motorsport at Donington in April. You're in Wales. I'm sure you will. Alexander Saggers is EFA tonight. Catching up whilst he's hiking in the deals. Shuffle your papers, Tim. I want I've to get got one to more person to say hello to. Go on then. Yes, um, yes. Uh, apparently you have a listener called Stephen Hearn. Uh, and right. apparently he's friends with my sister. Oh, okay. So Excellent. That's interesting. Excellent. Ella uh, Filipponi as well listening tonight. Shuffle your papers. Are you going to s- sort of punk us with a story from some uh, middle European single seater series uh, now I'm going to uh, annoy you with a story from Marinello all the latest motorsport news from around the world midweek motorsport race car engineering editor Andrew Cotton joins us big news uh, for the ACO big news for sports car racing uh, WEC Le Mans you name it Ferrari have added their name to a growing list of manufacturers who want to be involved in the top class of motorsport. They say hypercar, not LMDH. Does that decision, first of all, make sense uh, from your point of view, Andrew? Uh, Absolutely, it does. Uh, Ferrari always wanted to have the DNA of, of the Ferrari brand in it, and so therefore they're going to go for it with the full chassis hybrid um uh, expertise that they've already got within the uh, Ferrari group and they're going to go, uh, you know, they're going to push it as hard as they can. Um, if they went with a customer chassis, they've done that before with the Ferrari 333 SP. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they are, and the Ferrari, Ferrari 550 Marinello, let's not forget. So they have history of doing that, but after the 550 program, they wanted to do it themselves. They wanted to do a 575. They like to bring it in-house if they possibly can. Although LMDH might make more sense on paper and, and certainly on your budget sheet, um, <laughs> they're, they're going to want to go, you know, they're going to want to do the job properly and, and do the full, uh, the full LMH experience. It's, it's a gamble in some respects, Andrew. We've talked about this on this programme before. Ferrari, probably unlike any other manufacturer, are under immense pressure from in particular the home press, the Italian sports press, uh, every day in in Gazzetta della Sport, the, the daily sports newspaper, there are a couple of pages about Ferrari, about Formula One. If they are seen to be losing focus from, let's be honest, not a particular, at, particularly at the moment, successful Formula One operation, that's not going to play well in the Italian press and in their home market. It depends which way you look at it. Ferrari belongs at Le Mans as much as it does in Formula One. Uh, Ferrari has a long history in in sports car racing, a lot of success in sports car racing. And to have a positive message to hand over to uh, your 
shareholders, to your clients, to your fans, to have a positive uh, message like this, I think is is going to play well. We also have the resource restriction agreement coming into Formula One. Uh, they're going to have uh, less to play with. They have the same expertise. Whether that means that they have to cut the numbers from the Formula One program and put it across, whether they use, because they're going into LMH, that they use that expertise to somehow help the uh, learning in Formula One, it, it could all be seen as a as a positive. Um, and I think going back to Le Mans is the right place for Ferrari. I think all manufacturers belong at Le Mans. There's very few that don't. Um, but uh, Ferrari is definitely one of them that should be there. And, and I don't think that they're going to be too criticised for this decision in the press. I think that they have the expertise, they have the history, they have the, the knowledge, and, the, and everybody wants them to go there. Trust me, if they win Le Mans, those same newspapers will paint the front page bright red and everybody involved will be, will be lauded, won't they? Uh, possibility for, for customer cars as well, I would think, because, you know, the old adage, and it was started by Enzo Ferrari, why did you only build 399 of those, not 400? It's one fewer than we thought we could sell. Uh, they will sell any one any car that they build and put out there, whether it ever gets to a racetrack, sadly, uh, is a is another question. But but private cars as well, perhaps. I think all of them must be looking at private cars. Um, I know that Toyota isn't uh, because of their agreements that they have with uh, with various suppliers, um, and Ferrari may go the same way. Um, Glickenhaus is doing an LMH and has sold customer cars so we know that it's possible um and so you have the two uh, different f- or the two feet in the different camps already uh, one going full factory and one going full customer so it could go either way i suspect that what they'll do is go in as a full factory effort in the first instance get it up to a competitive level because this is not going to be a lmdh car it's going to be an lmh car so they have to hit all the targets yeah. uh, for the balance of performance. They have to have enough headroom in there to deal with the balance of performance and still have a competitive car. And then once they've got all of that in place, then maybe they'll sell customer cars. And you can still That's how I could see it playing out anyway. You can still use a, a road-based engine in LMH, and there are some advantages in terms of metallurgy and, and one or two other things to doing that. So it might not necessarily be a bespoke race engine, but you've got to think that they would come with a hybrid system on the on the front axle because through Formula One, they've, they've got a lot of experience of that. Well, they have, and, you know, it, it, it just makes sense to do that. Um, Toyota pushed very hard for for uh, hybrid on the front axle because they said it's the most efficient. The only thing is that with 500 kilowatts as a maximum power, uh, whether you do that only from the internal combustion engine or from a combination of engine and hybrid system, the advantages to it are more marketing than anything else. So you have to look at their road car products that are coming and say, which is, you know, do you need to have a hybrid to sell your road cars? If you're Ferrari, the answer is no. I mean, you can have anything that you want and yes. you, it's got a Ferrari badge on it. You, you'll sell it. Um, but you have to see what, you know, what they're planning to do. The problem, uh, the, the, the negative argument to that is the Formula Ones are all hybrids and nobody really knows about it. I talk to my children and, and they ask me, you know, is hybrid racing taking off? And you go, well, seriously, we've been racing hybrids at Le Mans for 10 years and we've been racing in Formula One since 2014. So mm. these are hybrid cars Good point. and you're not making a big deal of it in, in there either. 
question about the timing of, of this announcement. Uh, they'll be dancing in the streets of Le Mans tonight. Anybody who has an ear to your blazer or tie out there. This is big news. But we were talking about this uh, in third quarter, fourth quarter of last year on the prototype panel, uh, uh, which we put out before Christmas last year. I, I directly asked Pascal Zalinden whether the rumours I'd heard about Porsche talking to Ferrari and trying to get them in, to announce at the same time were true. And he certainly didn't deny it. Um, in, in which case, why now? Why is it taking them either A, so long, or why is now the right time for them to do it? Because I honestly thought we'd hear it before now. I thought so too. Um, I was also wondering what was happening with the... Uh, you know, that, that it would actually happen this year. I actually asked Ferrari on Monday and they said, no, we're not announcing anything. Um, and then two days later, they did. So, you know, it's nice to see that Ferrari is still up to its old tricks. Um, <laughs> I think that... They've uh, done it because it's midweek motorsport on Wednesday. You know that. They've got to give us our big story. I, I think it's nice to them. The, the top story is theirs. <laughs> well, I think that they've obviously looked after you very well. You you have insider knowledge. Um, but no, I, I think in all seriousness, the, uh, the they had a change at the top and it had to be the new... Uh, sporting director to come in and make the decision. And, and don't forget, if you have a customer racing program, then it's going to go through the customer racing division. And if you have a manufacturer racing program, then it's going to go through the Formula One racing division. And so I'm sure yeah. that there were some political games that were going on there as well. They finally reached a decision. Um, by the way, they haven't actually announced that it's going to be hypercar. They've only announced they're going to compete in hypercar. We're making the assumption that it's going to be a hypercar. Um, right, okay competing in the hypercar category uh, never mind we can have that argument again uh, another time but uh, i'm sure that the political games that have gone on within ferrari uh, have taken time to play out and now they've finally made the decision uh, they are ready to go and we wait to see what they what they come out with yeah, the details to come out, of course, in, in due course. They'll be racing in 2023, is what they say. Um, it doesn't give them an awful lot of time. Andrew, I know you'll be following this through the pages of Race Car Engineering. Thank you very much for joining us on Midweek Motorsport tonight. No problem. Always lovely to talk to you. And we're also joined by uh, Nick Damon, who's our Formula One correspondent. Good evening, Nick. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. How are we all today? Very well. Very well, thank you. Bit of a crossover this Nick, yes. In and Andrew mentioned it there, and mm. I, 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 I do not want to rain on the parade. This is a great sports car story, as yep. I said to Andrew, we've been waiting for it for a while. Um, resource agreement in Formula yep. One. Why is that? Why is that important when we're looking at this here? Um, quite simply, because Ferrari on its race team was spending in the region, it's always hard to nail it down, but in the region of 270 to $280 million a year with employee counts between 800 and 1,000, depending how you want to count consultants. As of this year, they have a maximum of £145 million they're allowed to spend. That will be gliding down slowly. And obviously, whilst you can reduce some of your overheads, your easiest overhead to reduce is numbers. You know, that'll save you the money relatively quickly. However, Ferrari, much like a couple of other big teams, don't actually want to fire anybody for a couple of reasons. Why it doesn't look good. And two, because they spent a lot of time developing very loyal employees. So what you then need to do is, is there somewhere else we can reposition these? And we saw this actually towards the back end of last year with the race team, with a number of um, 
quite well known Ferrari senior management, um, Timian Rester and Jock Clear, going to jobs with other teams or not directly associated with racing. Jock Clear now is going to be running the driver development um, environment, for example, which doesn't come directly out of the um, budget for F1. But, you know, he keeps him on board, keeps his expertise around, but, you know, not actually, um, you know, on the F1 payroll or attributable to by the uh, by the accountants within the FIA. Uh, and so there, you still get, have to re- realign a certain number of people. You've got a lovely big wind tunnel you're allowed to use for only a certain amount of time and less and less hours in the day. You're only allowed to use your supercomputers for less and less runs every week. Um, they're sitting there as assets. Why not use them? You can't do what you would normally do, which is sell another, sell another F1 teams because they're all resource restricted. So you then think, where else can these people race? Hence the reason we had the conversations, which I think recently ended about Ferrari providing an engine for IndyCar. Uh, and they've decided to do, which was pretty obvious to all of us from day one. That's end to the top, end to the top flight of sports car racing. Still a good sports car story, though, isn't it? Well, no, because it doesn't really matter why someone enters. They've entered. I mean, it, the fact that it's, 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 it, I think it's a very good story for motorsport because it basically shows that Ferrari did not want to lose its high-powered staff because it had, it, it had signed up to the resource restriction, which is designed, let's be honest, to help. The smaller teams in F1, you know, you know, the rest of the big teams might have moaned, moaned PR-wise, but they didn't mind spending the cash. Surely flooding uh, the employment they, market with really uh, experienced, qualified engineers would also help smaller teams. They've lent them instead, haven't they? Yes. Maybe lent Hass and uh, and Alfa Romeo. Maybe lent, lent. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it, I think it's very positive for motorsport. Obviously, very positive again for the Italian carbon fiber triangle, whatever they call it. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's great news. I think it's obviously, you know, as, as you said, you know, the, the the happiest people in the world will be well, the guy who has to write two pages on Ferrari and Gazzetta della Sport and the whole of the ACO. Uh, just a, a thought, um, a thought from me though about that situation that we've talked about before they can't fail can they they've got to do something it's a great story and and right up until their first race it's still a great story but if they finish fifth in their first race or seventh and a Glickenhaus beats them mm. then it's a terrible story well the problem we have is that this, is, is a the rules aren't quite regarded we, we we've just without take Glickenhaus out we have currently have seven works entries for well, that's a works entry as well, so you can't take them out. Okay, but I'm talking about major manufacturer entries then. We have seven major manufacturer entries now uh, announced in 2023. Um, so there's a very good chance you can come fourth, therefore you'll be the halfway down. Mm. The, you've beaten three and lost a three, but still lost. Yeah, um, great. You know, if you go back to last time, I can remember this much manufacturer interest in a particular series, and that'd be Super 2000 in touring cars. Yep. Eventually... You, you have nine manufacturers, but you two or three leave because they can't win. Yeah. But that's a couple of years away from this. And Ferrari... Job are... that nobody wants at the moment, Nick. Uh, head of the technical committee for the ACO or for IMSA. Well, no, absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, the thing to also remember is that Ferrari are incredibly well-placed to build a hybrid race car. Yeah. They, are, they have... There's only... If they wanted to be hybrid, if it suits them, if it suits them, as Andrew said. It will be, because for commercial reasons. There's only three other companies who have the same level of experience, and only, you know, two of them will be still doing it properly in years after this. Tim? Uh, Nick means fewer and fewer, not less and less. Yes, he does. Was that your point? That that was my (laughs) first point. um, Yeah. Because that's the one that I know will get a huge amount of criticism from our management. Um, That's a good point. Uh, Triangolo in uh, Fibra di Carbona 
is uh, the Italian for carbon fibre triangle. Sounds better. Everything sounds better in Italian, doesn't, <laughs> it? doesn't it? Really, it does. Was that your second point? That was my second point. Uh, okay. Anything else? Cause be- no. I, I want to have. Uh, there's one more thing I want to ask Nick. You ask before Nick we one move more on thing then. Before we actually move on to Formula One news. Um, so who's not there that should be, Nick? I reckon um, there's room for another VAG brand, Lamborghini. I'm looking at you. Uh, and and obviously they'll all share the same chassis, the same LMDH chassis. So that'd be Porsche, Audi, and Ferrari, and Ferrari and Lamborghini would all sh- sh- uh, share the same chassis, but potentially with different engine configurations. Uh, obviously missing are Mercedes and BMW, Ford, and Nissan. Anybody else you can think of out of the major manufacturers? That, no, because we, we are be assuming, of course, that we, we well we know there'll be a GM brand. We don't just don't know which one it'll be. Oh, More likely, well, it's, it's probably going to be Corvette. Corvette. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, the problem is though, you, as, as I just said, we've got to seven. Is that encouraging or dissuading for other manufacturers? Mm. It's. I mean, it is. It is a good point, isn't it? Because we've heard people say before that they didn't want to come in in the early to mid-2000s because they didn't think they could compete. And that was really only when Audi was there. If you've got the might of Toyota and Audi and Porsche, all right, Audi and Porsche might only be running customer programmes. It's kind of what they're leaning towards. GM will probably have a works programme, as will Honda in some way, shape or form, or Acura. Uh, It'll be Honda, obviously, at, at, at Le Mans. And any of those that I mentioned, how far down. And also... By the way, and again, I want to rain on everybody's parade. If you like GT cars at Le Mans, sorry, there's no room anymore. Because if each of those manufacturers, even the ones that we know, um, and so eight, possibly nine, but let's say eight, that's 16 cars. Assuming there are no private entries in the first few years, that's 16 cars. But that clearly will grow very, very quickly to have some private cars. So let's say if it's only 20, then you have at least 20 LMP2s split into, I am absolutely certain, LMP2 Pro and AM. You're going to be close to 50 cars. So what? You're going to have 10... Are you going to have 10 GT cars? I don't think I don't you know. are. The, who, and how are you going to run the WEC? All right, some of those cars will be there, but there's only about a 38 car limit for WEC and that will be t- taken up just with the P1s and P2s. Well, that's what it'll be. That's what it will be. There will be no GT class in WEC. There's no room for it. Who, who's going to be in these LMP2 pros then? Because surely the explosion in LMP2 at the moment is down to people wanting to get practice in the prototype before uh, LMH and LMDA. Uh, well, not really. No, because these, these cars are going to be platinum drivers across the board, aren't they? Because they'll works be the- drivers works drivers and you, you've still got the same number of um fritz van airs and similar who want to be the um the gentleman in a, in a p2 car but that'll be, p- no, but that'll they'll, be, p2 they'll be that'll be a p2 arm. i still think there'll be a p2 pro pro category for all the people who are trying to get the eye of the manufacturers team to get into their factory program when dave and barry and roger are getting too old i think they're yeah, a great I mean, trio by the way they were good, but it's a very good point you raise. I mean, is it, does it now mean that people will abandon the single-seater ladder quicker to do a Nation Le Mans series with their cash rather than a year of Formula 3 or Formula 2 or, you know, ELMS? Because they can suddenly see, yeah, I'm probably not going to make F1. My dad's not a billionaire. I feel we may be talking about this. Uh, Hyundai is another one, definitely, the real soon. Mazda, Mazda Mazda, I would not say is a major manufacturer now because they have decided to walk away 
from their prototype program. They put the their money somewhere else, and they are they are much more of a boutique manufacturer, a small series manufacturer. But Hyundai definitely that's another good but one. You mentioned missing, Lamborghini; they're a boutique Sorry. manufacturer, John. Yeah, it suits their marketing within VAG. Um, quick one: the one that should be there but won't be because they're under um, slightly confused management is of course Jaguar. Well, uh, uh, again, um, would Honda go to do a hypercar up against Toyota whilst running an LMDH as an Acura? No, is the answer to that, Simon. It will be branded an Acura in Europe as an LMDH. Um, does it now make sense for the WEC to have classes for LMH and LMDH from 2023? No, Matthew, it doesn't. Matthew Heinemann, that is. It has to be a combined class because there's no point in them not all running. The... the the, what has to change to make it more sensible is the top class has to be called LMP1 or something like that. You can't call the class hypercar and have a class within the class as hypercar and another class as LMDH. That is utterly pointless. And Pierre Fion, if you're listening, I'm telling you now, it's just going to be confusing and people won't understand. They will think that hypercar is only for hypercars and LMDH is something else. So you have to, have to change it. Kevin Poulton, will the WEC have to split up into P classes and GT classes? There won't be room for GTs, Kevin. This is the end of GT in WEC if this keeps going the way it is. Simple. Simple as that because you can't transport as many cars as you need to, which solves the problem of, LM, of GT3 going to Le Mans, of course. We're not going to have room for Formula One here. You can do one Formula One story, Tim, if you can make Well, I was just going to say... <laughs> We know what happens when uh, the ACO throws all its eggs into the manufacturer prototype uh, basket and uh, ignores GTs, don't we? The difference with this, the major difference with this, we're going to have to hold Formula One over now into later on I in the show. I just want to do one story. All right, okay, because we've got guests lined up and I don't want to keep them waiting. Um, it is, the difference is here is private cars. And Audi and Porsche are absolutely going to provide private cars. Andrew said Toyota won't because there is proprietary information and, and systems within the cars that they don't want to share. Uh, Glickenhaus have already said that they're going to sell cars and have already got orders for cars. Ferrari will sell every car that they, that they build. And most of them will never go to a track. Most of them will never see the light of day, probably. But they will sell them. Um, other manufacturers, Honda... Uh, Acura, I'm sure they will want to sell cars in the brave new world. What does AF I'm Corsa sure... do? Uh, sorry? What does AF Corsa do? A- AF Corsa uh, will then be able to run Ferrari hypercars and GT3s. So they've got a huge business in GT3. Just not going to Le Mans and not in the WEC. Okay, moving on. Uh, we have touched upon Formula 1, Nick. Hooray! Ouch! For touching it. Uh, this uh, Le Mans uh, Ferrari hypercar, what, uh, what do we expect to see on the side of it? Well, hopefully not Mission Winnow. <laughs> It'll be red. be Shell, probably. Mm. Um, I don't know, the normal Cobb DHL get delivery, whoever their, their package of sponsors are. Of course, theoretically, of course, they'll be selling it rather than Philip Morris, the sponsorship. Mm. Well, you see, the Formula One car this year is going to have two new sponsors on it. Uh, is it? Yes. 
First of all, Australia Galicia 0.0. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, yeah that's just the, that's the Carlos Science person sponsor that's fallen everywhere, yep. Uh, but also Richard Meal. Mm-hmm. Now, He's you could say his... Richard Meal is uh, Charles Leclerc personal sponsor because they've been backing him for over a decade. Mm-hmm. But this is bigger than that because Richard Meal is going to become the official timekeeper of the Ferrari Challenge. And it's going to become uh, the technical partner of the Ferrari eSports series. And it's going to sponsor the Ferrari Driver Academy. Very interesting. Yeah, also, Richard Mille is a president of the FI Endurance Commission. Mm. That's a very good point, well mm. made and beautifully presented for a very expensive watch, Nick. Every on on the subject of uh, very expensive watches, uh, Richard Mille has announced it's going to create a limited... A range of limited edition watches that will embody uh, Ferrari's technological excellence and distinctive styles. In the same week, I saw that Tag Heuer has gone back to Porsche and are doing special edition watches for the new GT3. Which is very nice. Indeed. Uh, Coming up, Tim. Uh, Coming up tomorrow night at nine o'clock, it's uh, on the grid. Uh, for your look at everything Australian. And uh, here's Richard Crail to tell us what to expect tomorrow night. This week on The Grid, three-time Touring Car Masters champion and son of a legend Stephen Johnson is on the show to talk about TCM competition. He's racing an XD Ford Falcon now, running as a tribute to his old man's famous Ford that made the Johnson name so famous at Bathurst in the early 1980s. Stevie J talks developing the new car, his thoughts on close family friend John Bow and his battles, and much, much more. Then Will Davison is back to preview the first weekend as a Dick Johnson racing driver as the supercars head to the mountain for the first round of 2021. Plus, we predict what will be hot or not this year. Probably badly, but it was fun trying. It's your week in motorsport with an Aussie flavour. On the grid, 9pm Thursdays, UK time on RS1. Well, let's take a little bit of Asian Le Mans series uh, news now. And congratulations, because we've got a champion on midweek motorsport. Kyle Tilly joining us uh, from the USA, where he's just returned from winning the LMP2 AM section of the Asian Le Mans series. Uh, did you manage to get the trophy back on the plane? That's the first first thing, Kyle. Well, actually, I had to go and buy another suitcase because you got um, a trophy for each race, and then there was a team trophy, and then there was the end of year trophy. So we had to go and buy, we had to go suitcase shopping, which is definitely a very good problem to have. Yeah, very good. How did you find the, the, congratulations, I should say, uh, very, very nicely done. Um, and something I think we're going to have to get used to. Asian Le Mans series have done it for a couple of years now, this LMP AM uh, championship, which is at the moment only a driver's uh, championship. It doesn't get a, a, an, an invitation to, to Le Mans, but I think that's something we're going to see. ELMS, uh, European Le Mans series, are going to to introduce that as well. There was talk of it certainly at, at Le Mans with a separate podium and possibly in the, the WEC. Um, how did you... How did you cope with the very strange format that that we had? What was it? Four races in eight days. It was intense. Um, it so firstly, it was great, great, great seat time and training for uh, Dwight, who's our obviously our bronze in IMSA and ELMS for this season. But um, yeah, it was it was hard. It was hard on the crew. It was hard on the guys. It was. Everybody there, um, no matter what class you're in, said it was tougher than a Le Mans week. 
because there was just so much going on, like four hour race after four hour race. And then we'd have Monday, Tuesday to prep the car and back on track Wednesday. But uh, super enjoyable and big thank you to the ACO and Asian Le Mans series organizers for putting it together in this uh, slightly strange time we're living in. I thought it was quite an elegant solution for them to be able to get that and even the late shift to to Dubai as well to give you guys the opportunity to go into the UAE and effectively serve the quarantine that you needed before you went to to Abu Dhabi by actually being in Dubai and potentially going racing there as well. It was quite clever what they did. As I say, an elegant solution. The team did a good job. Two cracking tracks as well, let's be honest. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed Dubai. Uh, it made Sebring feel smooth, but apart from that, it was super <laughs> enjoyable to drive. I, uh, I definitely go back to both places. And Yas Marina is just beautiful. The setting, everything about it. Do you know what's interesting? That I've never noticed how bumpy Dubai is. I've driven it in uh, street cars and some school cars out there a while ago now when I, when I did, did that. But seeing the LMP2 cars there, particularly down the the back straight, effectively, the middle straight, into yeah, turn 10. Yeah, that. I mean, there was people driving offline there to avoid those ripples. It reminded me an awful lot of before they graded the back straight at Circuit of the Americas, when yep. it, it was all rippled like that. I mean, was it, was it literally you had to drive offline there to, to keep the wheels from locking? Yeah, in the in the P2, um, we were braking in the middle of the back straight um, just to try and alleviate some of the bumps. Um, it, it Obviously, it pinched off the entry to turn 10, but it allowed you to brake so much later without massive lockups, which we struggled a bit with lockups at Dubai in general. Um, maybe missed the, the setup window a little bit, but it was still a ton of fun. And like to go there racing was uh, was an absolute blast like turns four five and six in in the p2 were awesome that that's the right at the beginning of the lap so you've come downhill to turn one which is tricky very yep. tricky downhill uh breaking area through the little flick flack that's turn two and three and then you're setting up for that serpentine run through the next bit down to sort of and it's seven. flat in the p2 as it's well flat it's flat in the p2 no way yeah so, but is it easy it, flat though? Is it flat only if you're absolutely um, on the right line? It was flat even on a triple stinted tire, as long wow. as the line was perfect. Wow, that's so really that, that shows you how good the current Orica is. It, it, I, I've I've wanted obviously you know we've been going there for many years to to look after the 24 hour series and yep. GT3 is the highest level. We, we had a few prototypes there in uh, in the Creventi prototype championships in the past but not as advanced as they are now and certainly not as much downforce I don't think as they they have have now and I, I I had always thought I'd often wondered what it would be like to see a multi-class race with prototypes at the front and I really enjoyed it I, I kind of knew I thought I knew what we'd get at Yas Marina but Dubai I wasn't sure I was hoping it was going to be a good race and it it turned out I thought it it it, it worked really well with the classes that were there yeah me too I I definitely enjoyed Dubai a little more than Yas Marina um and I think that just comes from the fact it was more open more fast and flowing yeah. less kind of first gear trickery but uh <laughs> Yeah, it and was, when it was dark, it was dark in Dubai because there's no lights out there, is there? No, no, it's uh, it's dark, dark there. Thankfully, the P2 has relatively good headlights. 
that's I mean it's a great way to get your season off. So we've we've had Daytona, which yeah, you know, let's be honest, that kind of went okay for you guys. Yeah, that one went okay. Yeah, that we'll one. Take go, that again. You t- absolutely take that again. Then you go and win a championship in effectively two weekends, which you can't often say that happens. How does that set you up then, both you and, and Dwight, and and you know for for Sebring going onwards? Um, obviously, it puts everybody in a good place mentally, doesn't it? I think uh, it's very. <sighs> I know it's set the bar very high now. So I think anything less than winning at Sebring will be like, oh, huh, okay. So, um, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, honestly, I'm just looking forward to getting back in the IMSA car and uh, getting on with it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely teed up the year to perfectly. Are there any differences or if there are, are there significant differences between the spec that the car runs in LMP2 in IMSA to what it runs in Asian Le Mans series? Uh, no, not particularly. Um, the ACO championships are a little more free with uh, aero uh, and what we can do with that. But uh, other than that, the, the car is basically the same. It's just uh, setup related, um, kind of our own setup versus Jota, who are running the program for us in Asian Le Mans series. Who, big thank you to them. We couldn't have uh, couldn't have done that without them. They kind of know which way is up as well, in fairness. Yeah, Sam, Sam's great, and he runs a great ship. So. Uh, Sam it. good lad, good lad. Um, what about what about ERA then? Um, and it is ERA, by the way, for those listening. It's not ERA, it is ERA. Um, I mean, it's spelled <laughs> yeah. ERA, but it, 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 we call it ERA. That's, uh, that's the proper way to do it. Um, how's the rest of the season looking for that? Sebring just around the corner, so um, that is obviously on your mind what targets do you have for the rest of the year uh well personally so i've got um as a team well as a team first we have you know full whimsy season um we have the full elms season hopefully le mans if we get the entry we've kind of got everything crossed for that and then personally i've got a couple of historic events um i'm doing le mans classic uh monaco historic in a Actually, so I'm doing Monaco Historic in the James Hunt. Um, oh, sorry. I seem to have lost him now. What a shame. We won't be talking <laughs> to him anymore. Oh, the envy yeah. levels have just gone into the red here. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate with, uh, with both of those events. And I, that was one of the real kickers with COVID. It was, it was the right thing to cancel the event, obviously. But uh, I was supposed to do Monaco Historic last year in the Ensign, which I'd been driving in the Masters historic f1 championship in 2019 but that all was cancelled and uh thankfully i've got the opportunity to do it this year assuming it goes ahead in hunts hesketh which is uh, that's going to be mega there's i'm super excited about my that. heart bleeds for you having to take yeah, tough, on that tough gig, but someone's got to do it i guess <laughs> monaco historique and uh le mans classic this year on the same year which um they're normally split aren't they by yep. a year so with uh with le mans kind of in the middle uh, of that, I suppose. How are you structuring then your your season, and particularly with with the team? Is is ERA going to be running the ELMS car, or have you got somebody who's going to look after that for you? Um, looks like we've still got to dot the I's, cross the T's. Um, we'd spoken to both Jota and Idexport. Yep. Um, Dwight has a great relationship with... Uh, Mr. Manassian, who is now team manager at IDEX Sports. So it looks like we're going uh, that route. Um, so that, that'll make life uh, easy for us. 
he's, we, we he's a bit he's a bit experienced that Manassian fella, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, Nick, uh, Nick's great. I love working with Nick, so I'm uh, I'm excited about that. Um, I'm just yeah excited to get on with that one, and obviously you know bringing along uh, a certain Mr. Ryan DL. Yeah, that was so a good be, pick. That was a good pick up. How did that come about? I, I've I've known Ryan for a while. Um, we've been friendly ever since I moved to America in 2013. He was one of the first people who I kind of reached out with out to um, and try, trying to figure out what I was doing over here. And we've stayed in touch ever since. And he got in. He gave me a call last year. And with uh, Core getting the band back together, obviously Colin went that direction, which completely understandable. So I. Ryan was the first person I called. Looking slightly further ahead, all of this LMPT stuff is is really apposite at the moment because we, we've seen so many teams, whether it's Phoenix or WRT from the, the Audi camp, one or two others as well, and drivers, Porsche drivers, jumping in LMP2 cars, Porsche GT drivers, all getting ready for LMDH. Let, let's make yep. more about it what ambitions if any have you got as as era in that direction because the, the joy for me about everything i'm hearing from all the manufacturers whether it's audi or porsche uh, particularly with their lmdh programs is it's going they are going to have cars out there with private teams do you have any ambitions there as far as the team's concerned yeah personally i would love to um Interested to see how it all plays out. Obviously, our, our P2 effort is very much centered around uh, Dwight Merriman and Dwight's racing. With him being the bronze or, or a bronze graded driver, I don't know how that will play out with LMDH. But I don't, honestly, I don't know how LMDH and LMP2 are going to play out right now. So certainly something that we're keeping an eye on. I think you have to. Don't you? If yeah, if if you're in absolutely. the business, um, and you know, and you guys are in the business, uh, you know, era relatively relatively new to the scene. But my goodness, you guys have made a made a splash. You must be absolutely delighted with how things have gone. Yeah, I, I honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. And if I think if you'd have told me that uh, we were going to have this kind of success, we only set the business up uh, just under three years ago. So I think if you'd have told me we were going to have this kind of success already, I'd have. Uh, probably laughed at you but um definitely definitely very happy with the direction we're heading but again always looking to grow well and again though in in some respects you make a rod for your own back there like like winning a championship and a a huge race in january and february because you've got to kind of keep keep that going has that changed at all kyle your your mindset and your medium term planning for for era in terms of what you've already achieved because i'm sure with some of those goals that you set yourselves you've already checked those off the list uh yeah we have actually um and you know to be at honestly even to be at le mans last year was probably two years ahead of what we thought was possible (laughs) uh so yes i'm trying to trying to figure out how to answer that one it's not something that i've been putting too much thought in because i don't want to get caught up in uh the, the current successes and lose some focus on what we're trying to achieve long-term with, with Dwight in his racing. But certainly for me, I think where we're at right now is definitely a year ahead of what we kind of projected yeah. or, or what we were expecting. Um, so certainly we're going to have to reevaluate, but uh, I, yeah, you know, great problem to have. 
just a final one from me. How do you balance then the driving and the team? Uh, and, and do you have to literally have your head in almost two separate pigeonholes? Or do you trust the team around you once you get to the racetrack? Uh, so as soon as I'm at the racetrack, I do nothing but drive. Um, I think it speaks volumes of our level of staff that we've managed to put together, um, especially we I rely on our engineer, Scott Best, pretty hard in our sort of general manager and team manager, uh, Vince Kramer. Everybody, you know, we've put together such a great group that uh, it just allows me really to focus on the driving, which is perfect. All, all power to you for that. You seem to have got the balance right at the moment, sir. Keep on. So far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. It's a winning combination in every sense of of the word. Uh, good luck at Sebring and for the rest of the season. And well done on what you've achieved in 2021 so far. Carl Telly, thanks for joining us on Midweek Motorsport. Thank you very much. Well, the second round of the WRC kicks off this week and we thought it would be a good idea to bring Ben Constanturis back to talk to us. Hello, Ben. Hello. Are you fitting well? I'm very well. I'm a bit sad not to be travelling to minus 20 degrees, bearing in mind I'm in a ski resort and it's plus 15. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to sitting and watching the uh, next round of WRC on TV. Just 10 stages. Uh, again, yeah. it's a short and sweet one, much as we saw with Rally Monte Carlo. Um, first of two visits to Finland, although this is not the Finnish rally, we should say. This is the Arctic rally, but it's not the Arctic rally because the Arctic rally already happened a month ago. Um, this is the Arctic <laughs> rally Finland powered by Capital Box uh, in its full title. Uh, and it does use some of the stages um, that were used in the Arctic rally a month ago in its usual spot. But of course we lost rally Sweden. that should have happened what last week or the week up before. And we needed the snow rally go as high as you possibly can to guarantee the snow as much as you can. And uh, the guys who organize both rally Finland, but also the Arctic rally stepped in and in about a month put together this, uh, this 10. That's why we haven't got very many stages because it takes a long time to obviously write the road books and stuff. So just two stages on the Friday, two stages on the Sunday, and actually they're the same stage repeated. Uh, And then three stages repeated twice on the Friday, uh, on the Saturday, sorry. Um, Basically, that's why I'm not going because there's not enough stages to need two stage end reporters. <laughs> oh, really? That's how it comes down to it. Um, yeah. as it. As it stands then, after Rally Monte Carlo, which was interesting, it wasn't a classic uh, in terms, again, of, of the route, but I think it kind of worked. There was enough to keep people interested. Um, let's start with M Sport for uh, Ford World Rally Team. They sit in, in third in the manufacturer standings. In fairness, there are two different Hyundai um, uh, Hyundai uh, competition teams, um, mm. but we'll we'll sort of put them all together as a manufacturer for a moment. Uh, M Sport just off the back of a, a really big um, snow test that they've been running to get themselves ready for this event. Everybody does their uh, PET, so pre-event test, and yeah, Ford usually over the last couple of months because of their money struggles haven't been able to do one, uh, but. Uh, the PET will have helped Timo Sunanen a lot because he wasn't even sure after his crash on stage one in Monte Carlo that he would have the ability and the money and all the rest of it to participate uh, in the next round of the championship, not knowing what that was. Obviously, coming to Finland, 
uh, and him being a finished driver, he it, it makes sense for Ford to make the effort to get him in the car. So they've got three entries, the usual uh, two, which is him and Gus. Uh, and Gus, then Gus Greensmith, the Brit. Yeah. Gus Greensmith, yeah. Then we've got Lorenzo Bertielli, who we haven't seen um, for a while, but he's officially an M Sport Ford driver. And then there, there's a fourth Ford Fiesta WRC. It's quite cool, actually. It's quite a lot of WRC cars. And Jan Tunio, uh, run by Jan Pro, his own team, finished driver in a probably not the highest spec Ford Fiesta WRC, but it hasn't really developed over the last couple of years. So um, I think we should be watching out for him as well. Uh, interesting, um, because effectively, and we talked about this before the Monty, but Ford have, have effectively become a, a customer uh, a customer-facing team yeah. now because there's all the, the, there's some element of peer driver to to all of those names that you've mentioned. Yeah, unfortunately, due to the situation at, at M Sports uh, over the last year, they had to get rid of a lot of their staff during the COVID crisis. Uh, they haven't got the support um, as much as they had from Bentley and their other programs, mm. and so they are going through a bit of a hard time. And they also need to really focus on the new regulations for 2022 uh, on what they're going to do with basically having to build a brand new car, brand new engine, brand new everything and sack off all the technology um, and all the experience that they've had before in the Fiesta. The rumor is that the next M Sport Ford will be a Puma. Um, so ah, which, they really is, which is the little crossover again. SUV thing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, getting in as much money as possible into M Sport, I think, is is a real priority at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll so four WRC Fiestas uh, from them. Let's move on to uh, let's move on to uh, to Hyundai. Um, they've put a lot of pressure on themselves. Um, here, um, sitting second in the the championship, uh, two Toyota Gazoo Racing uh, WRT World Rally Team, which we'll talk about in a minute. They've already put themselves under a lot of pressure with some of the quotes I've seen. Andrea Adamo saying, "We really have to win this rally to put the." He didn't actually say nightmare, but the disappointment of Monte mm. Carlo behind them, and in uh, it suggests to me that they feel they want to get their series and their season up and running. They need to dominate. They really do need to dominate because Toyota was so strong in Monte Carlo and, and Hyundai just didn't have uh, the the match of them. Mm. Uh, I don't know how the Hyundai will be in the snowy conditions. It's a slightly longer wheelbase than the other two cars, giving it a bit more stability. But they're talking about this rally being the fastest rally of the season, remarkably, yeah. even though yeah. they're on snow. Um, something that suits Oitanak very, very well. Uh, I think we should be watching out for him to be very, very strong, especially as he will start uh, quite early on in the runners, the road order reversed from the championship positions. Um, but really the biggest story of them all, uh, they will field, uh, as a sub-story, they'll field Craig Breen rather than Danny Sordo in the third of the works cars. But watch out for the 2C competition cars. Pierre-Louis Loubet has starred at points uh, when he's been running and the team kind of running him, but have been given a second car to run Oliver Solberg in his debut in the WRC in a WRC car on on ice and snow, I'm very excited to see how he goes. And he'll, I mean, he'll, he'll grasp that undoubtedly with, with both oh, yeah. hands. Uh, 
second generation, of course, uh, and really does run uh, in the family with both his his dad and his mum uh, very handy behind the the wheel. Um, in, in terms of that Sordo switch, that's not a reflection on Danny Sordo's um, performance at Monte Carlo. He he's fifth in the championship uh, at the moment. Uh, uh, in terms of his uh, his points, Th- this was a plan to to have a bit of a a bit of a bench, if you will, for Hyundai throughout the season. Yeah, the way that Andrea Adamo sees that third car, only two score points for the manufacturers anyway. So the third car is used by him to place um, one of his cars at the head of the running order for that first day. So because Craig didn't participate in Monte Carlo, he will start early on on the road order um, because of his uh, position in the championship. Yeah. And it's a strategy that he's employed throughout the last couple of seasons since he's been in charge so that he can have at least one car high up the order that can score for the manufacturers if the other two who are fighting for the championship, which is obviously Oit and Thierry, aren't able to progress. So Craig and Danny will rotate it obviously said sebastian loeb was part of that rotation as well um and he's now pastures new although signing for signing for the bahrain pro drive dakar team doesn't mean you do very much for the rest of the year um <laughs> but uh but yeah so so no real reflection on danny's performance and actually danny doesn't like to do a full season anyway uh, it was Thierry Neville who was the best of the scorers for Hyundai uh, in Monte Carlo. It's third in the championship. Uh, how is the Belgian on ice and snow? Yeah, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't really look at that too badly, considering uh, he'd never run with his teammate, uh, his co-driver. Mm. Before that weekend, a late switch um, from his uh, previous co-driver to Martin and I think actually that was a very considering the difficulties of Monte Carlo, the way that the road uh, is very variable. I think Thierry did a great job to pick up a podium position on on Martin's debut and should be very, very strong uh, in in Sweden as well. And it should be pointed out, uh, Martin Wadega, is that Wadega? Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think it's about right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it should be said that it's not just sitting beside during the stages, of course. You have to make your notes beforehand with a driver, and it's all about building this relationship. I did see that relationship getting stronger through the Monty, uh, and it, it, it looks like they've got the basis of something to build on here. Absolutely. Um, I think there was still a, an element of trail period uh, at the Monte Carlo and there was still a question mark whether we'd see Nicholas Jussel return to that car once the contractual dispute was sorted. But I think it does seem as though it's all gone a bit quiet and, and uh, Martin Midegui will be in that car for the remainder of the season. But let's see. Uh, the thing about the Arctic rally is, yes, they will still have to create all their notes um, from a complete fresh. They won't really have any references, uh, but they won't have the variability uh, of surface like they would in Monte Carlo or even in Sweden because Sweden you see a lot of mud come through uh, most years in Sweden this is hard packed one meter snow it keeps snowing it doesn't grow above freezing at the Arctic and therefore you're not going to have anything other than hard packed ice or snow so it's going to tyre choice is going to be easy it's going to be the long studs the narrow tyres that we see that cars look a bit odd sometimes with them because the the tyres are so skinny but but 
that that is the full studded tyres that we'll see. Um, Toyota, then, I want to talk about Katsita-san. I thought a pretty pretty sensible and and really mature drive at uh, at Monte Carlo. Yeah, more and more he's getting the hang of what he needs to do in a in a world rally car. Obviously comes from uh, a single seater Formula mm-hmm. 3 background uh, and that's where he established his relationship with Toyota and and still flying the flag as a Japanese driver in a Japanese manufacturer's Very car. Very important. Uh, and when he has the pace Ultimately, on the gravel, it does tend to be it does tend to result in large accidents. Um, <laughs> tarmac rally is always a better, a bit more strong for him, uh, and I think he really enjoys the consistent surface. Yes. So, on ice and snow, I, I think he should be very good. He's very happy to be flat out, as you may have seen uh, his YouTube video that he put out a couple of days ago. Worth seeing a helmet cam on his pre-event test and it's pretty cool to to watch what he's doing and actually how calm he is on the wheel considering the speed he's carrying second generation drivers we'll be talking about another uh, one after Kalerov and Pera fourth in the world championship uh, for the young Finn and I, I take it he's going to Finland as well there's no switching around at Toyota no, I mean, Kale Rovenpera, Sebastian Auger and Elvin Evans are confirmed for a full season campaign. So Toyota will always have three cars. Uh, Taku is not supposed to do all of the rounds, but he is obviously doing this one. Mm. Uh, lots of people saying Kale Rovenpera, the favourites to win the rally. Good road wow. position to start. Uh, obviously, huge experience, huge confidence uh, on ice and snow. He's got the Toyota underneath him that seems to be the best car for the conditions. Uh, and... He took his maiden maiden podium in Sweden last year. So that is the kind of the expert tip. And he just might be able to get the measure uh, of his two much more experienced teammates. Elvin Evans, second in the championship at the moment. A, A good Monty for him. Not a great one because he didn't win it. But he was there or thereabouts a couple of stages, just a couple of stages where he's perhaps in those changing conditions that you mentioned earlier, was a little conservative and got a bit annoyed with himself over that. He's he's very much a perfectionist, but he came up against Auger on sparkling form in Monty. And Auger, in fairness, is a real master of that event. Um, Elvin Evans here on the ice and snow. How will he go? Well, Elvin was very strong in Sweden last year, but that was because it was kind of the most weirdest. It was almost like a, a November Welsh day in yes. snow. Like there was some snow, there was a lot of mud. Uh, Elvin seems to love that kind of condition, that really random surface. Uh, Sebastian Auger is almost unbeatable in Monte Carlo when he has a good day. And, and Elvin did a good job uh, to be close to him. But as you say, very frustrated with um not being able to attack the ice and snow sections uh, like he would want to. Um, I think road position wise, him and Seb could potentially struggle. There is forecast for snow. And if you have snow, um, the cars that are first on the road have to basically be snow plows. Correct. Uh, A lot more friction because of the soft snow that sits there. And I think Seb and, and Elvin will suffer from that. Yeah, Yari Matilatvila, the new team boss at uh, Toyota Gazoo WRT, heaped praise on on Elvin um, with uh, for his his performance at uh, at Monte Carlo. Uh, good team management, clearly, as you see, he's come up against someone who knows that and wins that rally uh, very uh, knows it well and, and wins it uh, a lot. Um, but, but that's 
surely going to give the young Welshman a, a little bit of a fillip as he goes into the Arctic Circle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what he, what both he and Sebastian Auger need to do is not get frustrated by the fact that they're losing big chunks of time. And let's not forget that these stages are on average 25 kilometers in length. They are long, long stages. Mm. The Friday stage is 31 kilometers in Ooh, length. Right. So it will be, the, the time gaps at the end of the stage will be large and uh, even if the speed is high. So uh, the key will be for those guys not to get too frustrated that they've lost too much time and just make sure they're concentrating on bagging the championship points as we move into the next part of the season. Yeah, uh, and we should mention Yari Matalatvala uh, actually won a, a rally a couple of weekends. Yeah. Uh, uh, not in one of the new Toyotas. He got out his old Celica. Uh, GT4, which was one of the things that he said he only took the job because they said he could still drive his classic classic GT4, which I think is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What about Augier then? It's interesting what you've mentioned. If you're talking about 30 kilometres, a second a, a kilometre, a half a second a kilometre, that would be a huge, huge difference. But that's the sort that you could lose on these fast stages if you get the wrong weather at the wrong time. If you've got the snow that is going to slow you down, then that is that is possible. You may see 15, 20 second gaps here. Yeah, I, I, I truly believe that. And the other thing to watch out for is um, huge snow banks at the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do end up tapping them with the rear end or front end and damage your aero that will be hugely critical at the highest of speeds you need the aero to push the car to the ground uh, to because they'll be refining those setups to make sure the car works very very well but take a couple of aero flicks off suddenly it's imbalanced and you'll be struggling with understeer or oversteer throughout that stage and it'd be so so easy to do so uh, we know that OJ is very very good at playing the long game thinking uh not not thinking too hard at least he'll only have two stages uh where he will lead the field those two uh stage one and stage two on at 31.05 yeah. yeah and then the the order will be versed for the long day on saturday yes which might give him a bit of an advantage uh we've got another couple of classes there um yep. uh, with the wrc cars um i won't ask you to put your your neck on the block for who will oh, go on i will who's going to win oh, yeah. wrc who's going to win wrc go on well, in WRC, I'm going to go with the experts and say Cali Rivenpera to win that. Right. Um, I'm actually really excited about WRC 2. Yeah. Um, at, or sorry, I should say Rally 2, because Rally 2 is all the R5 cars. Yeah. WRC 2 is the works cars. And then WRC is the uh, two, uh, three is the non-works cars. Yeah. In WRC 3, you've got Matthias Ekstrom. You've got Johan Christofferson. So I am really Really excited to see how those guys go. You've actually got Albert von Turn and Taxis as well. Oh, really? A bit further down. Yeah, he's uh, he's competing. And there is a guy from Saudi Arabia competing as well uh, in WRC3. So, and a lot of very quick Finnish drivers. Then you look at the 10 WRC2 competitors. Return of Etta Pekka Lappi. Yeah. He's in a Volkswagen polo. Great to have him back. I hope he absolutely stonks it. Andreas Mikkelsen in a Skoda. Obviously, incredibly strong in Monte Carlo, class the field. He was unbelievable. But then you've got Yari Huttonen in a Hyundai, his first works outing. He was unbeatable last year when he was in WRC3 in that class. Uh, and then Ollie Christian Vaby, who will be very strong on snow as well. Martin Krokop. 
it's going to be really cool. I know that we won't have very many onboard cameras from WRC2 because they'll all be used in the WRC category, but it's going to be really cool to follow that little story too. Yeah, some re- as you've mentioned, some really big names there. Ben, thanks for joining us, mate. Always good to speak to you. Best to everybody out there. Thank you very much. Midweek Motorsport. Half time. And while we swap ends, here's what's coming up. A little bit later than we should do, just after nine o'clock on Midweek Motorsports Series 16, episode. Uh, what are we on now? Eight. Uh, and Nick Damon will rejoin us in this next hour, uh, near enough. Uh, and we'll also. Uh, here we do some more Formula One news. Declan Brennan will be looking back at a Mortal GP legend. We'll look at some of your tweets as well. My goodness, we've started something. Just remember, in the mid-1980s, there were hardly any GT cars, four or five GT cars at Le Mans. So losing GT cars, it wouldn't be a first. It really wouldn't. Uh, Talking about Le Mans, what about Mr. Le Mans? That's the title of the new book that charts Tom Christensen's career. And Gary Watkins has written a chapter in it. Motorsport on RadioLeMans.com. Delighted to say that on Midweek Motorsport this week, we have been joined by esteemed... Motorsports and particularly endurance racing uh, journalistic legend Gary Watkins, uh, who has been around the paddocks probably more years than he likes to remember now. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm not too bad in this uh, strange world of ours that we are experiencing today. Very strange indeed. But thank goodness, um, at least this year, we've had Daytona on the date that was meant to happen. Mm. A motor race on the date that was meant to happen. Goodness. Uh, <laughs> Tom Christensen, Mr. Le Mans, the, the book is, uh, is due to come out shortly uh, and you were co-opted in to, to collaborate in this. And we'll, we'll talk about the book with Tom in, in a future uh, episode. It's not your standard autobiography. It's not presented in that way. What was your role in, in Mr. Le Mans, the Tom Christensen story? Well... Tom contacted me along with the uh, the author, and basically they wanted some input. But what what they didn't want, and when we discussed this, obviously, to to give a blow by blow chronological account of Tom's career would be uh, would require a lot of pages. So what they wanted from me was something um, of the flavour of the man, the races he's done. Uh, my interaction with him uh, in the paddock, because, you know, I met Tom on his Le Mans debut in 1997. Mm. And, you know, our paths have continued to cross ever since. Obviously, he was a a driver for most of that time. But also, and and my starting point, and so basically I came up with a sort of series of vignettes, Mm. sort of just sort of 10 or so short chapters, not particularly long, uh, chapterettes, I, I guess we should call them, starting off with my side of the tale of 97, because uh, I actually rang Tom on the Friday before Le Mans, so the Friday before Le Mans week, because Ralph Jutner, uh team manager at the time of US Racing, subsequently, uh, no, sorry, he was technical director at that time, mm. subsequently managing director, uh, had told me, that Tom would be in the car along with Michele Alvaretto and Stephanie Hansen. Uh, I happen to have, or someone in the office happened to have Tom's number. Uh, as, and so I picked, picked up the phone and called him. 
just to do a story for that week, well, it would have been the following week's uh, All Sport, but I thought I needed to talk to him on the Friday because obviously on Monday and Tuesday he'd be uh, fairly busy. So it's just basically me. So that was the sort of starting point, and that's just one of the tales, me calling him as he was struggling in the fog trying to find uh, Yurst Racing's headquarters as he went for a sitting, a seat fitting in the spare tub. So he hadn't actually got there when I called him and was actually struggling <laughs> to find the place. Little did you know, even after the extraordinary debut at Le Mans that, that Tom had, that he would go on to have such a phenomenal career at the world's greatest motor race. Um, he, he could have been there earlier, of course, Gary, couldn't he? he in fact, he should have been at Le Mans earlier with his, his links uh, with... Toyota in Japan. Well, I guess, yes, but if you think about it, Toyota stopped in uh, 93. That was the last year uh, with the TSO 1.0. So it's a little bit early. And of course, he did, he did race. Uh, he did a one-off in one of those three-and-a-half-litre Group C cars. And uh, he actually did a lot of testing. Uh, he told me it was at a, a bizarre test track that was... Uh, like really bumpy and uh yeah he, he did a lot of work on their uh on their ele- electronic systems and and he, he he made a decent living doing all kinds of testing down through the years but as i said inextricably linked uh with with le mans um i was there in 97 I, I'm, I'm not sure i or anybody else that was there at the time realized what we were really witnessing and and, and how significant that Tom Christensen era at Le Mans would be. Were you one of the people who thought Jackie Hicks' record would never be beaten, Gary? No, because I think records are always beaten. And, what, and um, obviously, the, the more a record, you know, six wins being extended to nine wins, obviously then that makes it a lot harder to beat, doesn't it? Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, I think, I think, I, I wouldn't say that I believe that it, Ix's record wouldn't be beaten. I would, I would say the odds are longer on uh, Tom's being beaten for, for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, you could never predict that... You can't predict anyone will go on and have that uh, amount of success because you can't predict the circumstances. can't even predict what's going to happen with, 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 with our branch of, uh, of the sport. But, you know, I, for me, I will always remember watching the timing screens in the night uh, and there's these old split timing screens yeah. and these the little square TVs perched uh, in the centre of uh, the sort of desks in the press office and one star alongside the driver or alongside the car meant fastest lap. Two stars meant lap record. Mm-hmm. And I just remember seeing star alongside this this new kid up, you know, alongside two established names, you know, one, uh, an, well, both ex-Ferrari yeah, yeah. drivers and, you know, one, a Grand Prix winner and one, an esta- you know, Stefan was a established sports car star who'd won Sebring twice, uh, you know, won Group C races. Uh, so, so, you know, Tom, you know, a lot of us probably consider Tom to be the sort of support act, if you like. Mm-hmm. But then it was star and then it was uh, double star saying he'd got the lap record, which wasn't uh, suitably significant because the, um, 
the track had been slightly reconfigured, you know, mm -hmm, it, it mm -hmm. increased by eight eight meters or or decreased by eight meters because they'd reprofile. I think they'd reprofiled uh, the Dunlop chicane. But anyway, but anyway, it was showing that a he did the fastest lap for his car, and then he did the fastest lap uh, overall, which was a lap record. And my memory is that he did five during during that stint. Wow, he did five. And was that the quad stint that he did during the night? Yes, exactly, yeah. When when stints were longer, of course, because the fuel regulations yes, were different. Right. So that was the sharp end of four hours in a yeah, car, yeah. which is all you could drive in those that's days. That's right, yeah. So, and still can, of course. Well, yes, four, four in any six, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, ju just just extraordinary for this, this youth with little yeah, yeah. or no sports car experience that people had known about as you say done a little bit but not at the kind of level he he was at i mean did after that race did you think right a star is born but we're never going to keep him in sports car racing he'll be off the formula one well if, of course yeah at that time he was leading the formula 3000 championship with the autosport international uh team and he famously left le mans during the week uh on the thursday to go and do a test yeah at uh, the A1 ring in Austria. He had to pay some of the money that Reinhold Joost gave him to drive back to him to charter his little plane to go and fly him so he could do his test because he was contracted to Autosport International. You know, he wasn't taking money. He didn't have any money to take. Uh, so, yeah, there, there was always the... Uh, the thinking that he he would he would get to Formula One, I I you know you'd look at his record, you know winning Formula Three titles in two countries, winning Formula Three thousand races, you'd think he's you know he's got a fighting chance of getting to Formula One, uh, or at that time you'd have probably said there were more opportunities for him in the States. Yes, with with carts being in its pomp. Good point. Uh, you know, and sports cars. We didn't quite know it at the time, or we had an inkling of it. The sports cars were sort of on an upward trend and about, you know, about to have a, a shed load of manufacturers involved. Uh, so there were the opportunities for him. But you, you probably, you know, don't forget at this time, there was no, no World Endurance Championship, no, uh, no ELMS, no, uh, you know, the ALMS hadn't started. So American sports car racing in America wasn't, arguably in the best of health. Uh, it was, certainly wasn't in its glory, wasn't in the glory days that we had at the end of the 80s, start of the 90s, or the glory days that followed was the uh, ALMS. So, you you know, probably you'd have said that his opportunities to for the opportunity for him to forge a professional career mm. would be outside yeah. of sports car racing, would be in Formula One, kart. Or, or, of course, super touring. And, of course, he did go in, you know, he was racing in super, he did race in super touring. Super uh, touring and DTM, uh, both a bit yeah. of unfinished business for him. Yeah. Um, Le Mans itself, Gary, um, his record is extraordinary. And yet, um, it could be even better. Tom came into sports car racing and Le Mans at a time when Audi were coming in uh, when reliability got to a level that we'd never seen before in endurance sports car racing. But ironically, it was some 
non-finishes or some reliability problems that cost Tom, what, three, four well, more Le Mans victories? Well, you'd, you'd say two dead certs. 1999 in the yes. BMW V12 NMR and uh, 2007 with the Audi R10 TDI. On each of those occasions, the car he was driving was four laps, give or take, a little bit more, a little bit less than four laps in the lead. Of his nine victories, he never won Le Mans by more than two laps. So the years, the two years that he had the biggest margin he didn't actually win and he actually dnf'd which was another uh, not a regular occurrence in his in his career and and just to sort of make the story just to sort of yeah back up your point that he could have been easily a 10-time winner or an 11-time winner uh you know it's freak failures mm. that put the car out on both occasions the, the top of the damper unwound itself on the BMW. So it's not just, so that was a fairly freak thing to happen. But because of that, the, uh, the anti-roll bar fell down into the uh, throttle assembly and put, put the throttle stuck in the Porsche curse, put JJ Leto in the, in, the, in the wall. You know, in those days, there was no runoff. No. Uh, in the wall, out, out of the race. Eight years, eight years later, Dindo Capello lost the will coming into through uh, Indianapolis, sort of through the right, and then you know, sort of went straight on at the left. They Porsche, no, sorry, Audi and Yurst never got to the bottom. It wasn't an outlap either, he'd been out there for a few laps. Uh, More to the point, he'd been out for two laps, but at the pit stop that he'd been out from, he hadn't changed tyres. Yes, good point. it was Dindor's birthday that as well. That Sunday oh, yeah. was Dindor's birthday. I remember oh, yeah. I was on commentary when that happened. And yeah. when you saw the replay over and over again, you could see the wheel nut fly off. Yeah, yeah. It's probably in the forest somewhere still. Well, um, that, that would be a good thing to have on your desk, wouldn't it? Okay. Tom, Tom can you sign this for us? <laughs> Do you think he would make me eat it? I think, I think he, I think he probably, he probably would. Um, yeah. But, but then obviously the, the, there are other arguments that, you know, potentially, you know, you could say he lucked in with his teammates on other other occasions. You yep. know, you, you could say that, you know, you, uh, there's plenty of people at Bentley who who will tell you that the uh, sister car, people will tell you it was quicker. But they had uh, an electrical issue, changed the battery twice, mm-hmm. had a bizarre problem with the uh, head restraint. Uh you know, so, you know, that's, and, and Tom will always tell you, isn't it, you know, that, that uh, Le Mans chooses its winner. And, and, and it is, uh, is it a platitude? I don't know. It, it just rings true to me. Amongst all of that, and all of that that you've just said, Gary, I, I, I don't disagree with anything there. The other thing that stands out for me is his finishing record. And you sort yeah, of hinted yeah. at it there. Because it was very unusual for him not to finish, and if he yeah, finished, yeah. he normally finished on the podium. Yeah, I, I, yeah. If you put, I, I know it's easy for me to say because I've never even raced at Le Mans. Put aside the nine victories, yeah, yeah obviously yeah. you can't. But look at his podium record yeah, with yeah. different teammates, sometimes different teams. Look at what he did with the team Gorkar, which yeah, yeah. you know was a. a, a, a Effective? No, it was. I'm not going to say effectively. It was a private-entered car. I would say I would call it um, 
I would call it semi-works because, right. you know, let's not forget that it had two factory drivers in it and it had Joe Hausner engineering it. And of course, Joe had engineered the hat trick uh, of Audi wins for, for Tom, Emanuele Pillow and Frank Beeler uh, and had also engineered the uh, Bentley uh, to victory in, uh, in 03. So, you know, it was, it was heavily work supported. Wasn't the favoured car that year? Wasn't no, the, certainly no. wasn't the favourite. The two Velox cars um, were were definitely the ones to look at. But as I say, look aside from the victories. Look aside from those like nine victories, and look at how many time that, that Tom has stood on on the podium, and that yeah. in itself is an extraordinary statistic. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It, yeah, <laughs> again, possibly that will never be, you know, his tally of podiums will never be beaten. I mean, you know, who knows what the future holds for, you know, we, can, we can't predict. No, we can't. Where's the next Tom Christensen coming from then? Or where's the person who's going to cement himself in, in your writing and my talking for 20 years? Well, I suspect, and we, we don't know yet, I suspect, you know, we've got some ex- you know, some excellent drivers. Is there another Tom out there? I'm going to upset the whole paddock, aren't I, here? I could easily, uh, you know, you know, I've been fortunate to see, you know, since Tom was in his pomp, you know, we've seen some other great endurance drivers. And I'm going to say, put Andre Lotter in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do hope we see him back at Le Mans, challenging in a factory car for victory again. You know, we shouldn't underestimate someone like Sebastian Buemi, who is a, who is now on three victories, of course, yes. uh, at Le Mans. Uh, and he should have had a fourth. He should have had one back uh, when, of course, they were they were robbed with a um, uh, a turbo wastegate wastegate pipe fracturing in in some way. You know, in that sort of last gasp retirement, is is the new Tom Christensen racing in sports cars yet? Probably not. <laughs> I'd say. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> oh, great talking to you, Gary. Thank you very much for giving up some of your time. Really enjoyed your contribution to Tom's book. It's called Mr. Lamont uh, with uh, Tom Christensen going through uh, his career. Uh, it's available from uh, early March, I believe, although you can pre-order it uh, right now. We'll post all of those details, well, Tim will, uh, on our website and uh, on the archive of this show. Gary Watkins, thanks for joining us on Midweek Motorsport. Thank you very much. Well, some very sad news coming out of the MotoGP paddock this week. Uh, Fausto Grassini has lost his battle with COVID, just 60 years old. We reported when he first went into hospital and there was some better news. It came out a few weeks later, but sadly his condition has worsened and he died uh, this week. Declan Brennan is with us now. Uh, most of our listeners, I presume, will know him as the team owner uh, however and as a team owner by, by the way he's known triumph and tragedy uh, we'll get to that in a minute he had a really outstanding race record of his own in possibly one of the most competitive areas of two stroke 125 twin cylinder GP racing well yeah he th- to me when I think of him because I'm, I'm, I am a man of a certain age uh, I, I immediately jumped to this season that I really, really got into 
into uh, Grand Prix racing, and that would be uh, 87. I, I, I kind of watched it a little bit, but but it got exposed to me more in 87 because we got cable and satellite television in Ireland, so we were seeing a lot of uh, of of the uh, Eurosport uh, and screen sports coverage, for example. And they do the highlights of all of the races on uh, in the week after they, uh, they'd run. And in 87, he won 10 of 11 races. He only missed out on winning uh, the complete sweep in the final race of the year, the Portuguese Grand Prix at Harama, of all places, uh, not in Portugal. Uh, and he was racing uh, uh, for Gorelli on the uh, on the factory uh, Gorellis, which were completely dominant. Uh, he uh, missed out on the title the, the year before. He won in, in 85. The title uh, lost it to Luca Cadalora, his teammate, in 86, and then won it again in 87 in, with total domination. And th- they those bikes dominated to such an extent that effectively... The FIM changed the rules, and they went to... They went to a single cylinder, didn't they? They did, yes. And he struggled a little bit until uh, until the 1975 uh, World 125 champion, uh, Paolo Paleri, uh, started a new team, a Honda team, uh, and with Marlborough backing, and grabbed him alongside a four-year-old, Loris Caparossi, in 1991. <laughs> yes. And he took the title. Uh, Caparossi took the title, and Grassini was, was runner-up, so... He's been, to me, he's been one of the mainstays of the junior formula yeah, yeah. For, for so long. When when it was like a mini, in, it was an industry in its own right. And we've talked oh, about this separately. It was but, massive. It was it was win on Sunday, sell on Monday. There was huge amounts of money going in. Because two-stroke motorcycles across the world, but particularly in Europe, were, were selling literally like hotcakes. One thing I, I would say, by the way, when Caparossi won that t- that title... Um, Grassini and a couple of other Italians actually were protecting him um, from uh, was it Stefan Prine and and the Dutchman uh, Span Hans Span and 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 I I think he could have done better if they'd just not had team orders that year. Well, but- funnily enough, he gets the finger gets pointed at him a little bit uh, because in '87 particularly uh, Casanova the great uh, was his teammate at Gorelli and effectively did the what what's, you could refer to as the Ronnie Peterson uh, to Mario Andretti you know sat behind him yeah. and and uh, finished second a lot and uh, yeah absolutely so he he understood that uh, he was de- coming towards the end of his career and this is partially the part of the story that that kind of becomes the link that runs through his entire career this this understanding of how to work young riders and how to uh, how to nurture and and which That's became the mainstay of what he did of uh, literally the building blocks of his entire career in team management. You could argue started uh, in those final years uh, on the on the Marlborough uh, one two five Hondas, uh, and and clearly that inspired him to to get involved in. Even though he had a gap once his career ended before his own team started his own uh, Honda. Uh, 500 it was incredible for him to jump in at that stage mm. into into uh, with a few years out then to come back in at the level he did which was biting off biting off a little bit more than he could chew that was he, the first year of the uh, nsr 500 v twin wasn't it um, yes and, and he, was, they it ran barros? was it, it was bar- alex barros yes and and uh they did okay they didn't do too badly but i think it was fairly obvious that they'd bitten off probably a little bit more than they could chew uh, with that, and therefore he moved back to 250s, and 
and this is when things really begin to to take off from because the respect that that Honda had for him was such oh. that they uh, they they gave him the Giro Cato to to manage and run and and steer his career and Cato nearly did in 2001 what he did in 125s when he utterly dominated the 250cc world championship uh, for Grassini uh, and and he was his manager and his mentor and they dominated and naturally made the step up then uh, in 2002 into uh, the 500cc world championship and of course this is when the first of, of effectively the the major uh, moments of his career as a manager uh, uh, occurs when in uh, Japan at the start of 2003 after a brilliant first season a rookie mm. season in, in 500ccs Kato who was undoubtedly a star and undoubtedly I was a world champion in the making. Well, yeah, and for and for the Japanese, that's what an enormous thing that would be. Yeah, and and this was the arguably the guy to do it, and and he has the accident at Suzuka and and passes away a couple of days later, and and they the the the, the circus has to move on as it did to to welcome in South Africa for the next race, and. Uh, and Gibernau, his teammate, goes out and wins that race, which is just absolutely nuts to me. Nuts that that the whole team and and Cedar Gibernau as a rider had had it with him and within them to, and that speaks volumes of of the man who ran the team. It really and that does. was that must have been one of the low points. Another one for him was when Marco Simoncelli uh, was killed. Uh, he was very close. To Marco Simoncelli. In fact, it was said that he didn't sign um, another Italian rider because he never wanted to get that father-son relationship. You talked That's about it. how he mentored young driver, but biz- bizarrely, after the Sepang accident that killed Simoncelli, um, Michele Pirro won the Moto Two race next weekend yeah. at Valencia. Yeah, and it, it was so close to, to it really was so close to giving it up. Then I remember the interviews at the time. He he really struggled. Uh, I will say, uh, just in fairness to him, uh, I'd have been so close to giving it up after uh, 2003, four and five, when his riders, Gibernau in 03 and 04, and Melandri in 05, finished runner-up to Valentino Rossi in yes, the championship. Right. I would have happily thrown it all away. I would have happily uh, murdered Rossi and gone to prison. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so so he, you know, he, he, he was producing world-class riders and, and world-class uh, teams and te- world-class team performances. And yes, it could have all ended for him. But he went uh, the other way. He went yes. He went completely 180 degrees. And in 2012, decided that the best way to carry on was to go full tilt at it and entered all three classes. And, yeah. and as I found out when I looked at, a Honda NSF 100 mini bike series for Honda in Italy. Yes, he did. He ran that. And of course, so... Which is so where Luca Marini is, came from, yes, believe it or not. Yes, I was going to say, there's a full, there's a giant list of riders that his uh, his legacy includes. And one of them is, yeah, Luca Marini, who came literally from the Honda NSF 100 minibike series. So that year, 2012, he was uh, running three teams and running a, a series generating the next level of talent for Italy. It's absolutely remarkable. And all of this led to uh we're all also ignoring a 2010 a 2010 uh 
MotoGP, uh, 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 beg your pardon, Moto2 title for Tony uh, Elias. And we'll get back to that in a minute because oh, we, 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 we might not even have time have yeah, time but, for that, to be honest. But, but, but then he moves to, to and, and becomes uh, a, a Prilla's partner, which is uh, very and that was that was huge in financial terms because that was a works deal and he didn't have because before that he he had been sourcing deals and he had been sourcing yeah. sponsors uh they, that he brought uh them back to MotoGP they'd been away for 10 years or so um carries on with Moto2 uh, and Moto3 uh including and I'll quickly fire through Sam Laws, Franco Morbidelli, Lorenzo Baldassari and Ian Bastanini uh, the Moto3 Antonio, Gian Antonio, I mean, extraordinary. Six riders on the grid this year, Alisa Spargaro, Lorenzo Salvadori in, in the top class, Nicolo Bulega and... Nicolo Bulega, yeah, running in the... In, the, in Moto2 in the, with Gian yes. Antonio and Gabriel Rodrigo and Jeremy Alcoba in Moto3. It, it is such a legacy that he's clocked that up, by the way, at, at 60 years old. And and there is no replacement for him. There is no and, and and everybody who's ever dealt with him, by the way, says he's a lovely bloke to deal with. And yeah, the, the he ones always make himself up, available. Unbelievable. Yes, the, the one I, I come back to uh, a lot when I look through that list, and I'm literally staring at that list I've written down in front of me. Sam Lowe's. He had he had was in the unfortunate position of have to fire Sam Lowe's from from Aprilla, but Sam ends up r- racing on on uh, on the Federal Oil. Mm-hmm. Grassini uh, Motor 2 bike and uh, Sam doesn't have a bad word to say no. about the bloke who fired him it's like it's absolutely insane his legacy and the beauty is it's a you, legacy yeah, Dex, exactly. it's a and proper want, proper legacy exactly in the truest sense of the word we will look at the grids of these categories and Moto E by the way yes <laughs> Matteo Ferrari won the first Moto E World Cup uh, for for Grassini, so we will look at this for many years to come uh, because of the the number of people and and how young some of them are and how much talent there is in in the people that he's mentored and where they're going. So MotoGP's grid and and the the series below will have his fingerprints on them for many many years, many years. and there is. There is literally, and, and in a in a wonderful way, he will look over the sport. It's not a it, it, the sport will have him involved uh, for many years to come, and that's the way we need to remember him. No, and absolutely, ma- absolutely agree. Uh, he's survived by his wife Nadia and their children Lorenzo, Luca, Alice, and Agnese. Uh, he'll be much missed by friends throughout the paddocks of Moto. Race, motorcycle racing around the world and beyond that. And, of course, his team carries on. Dex, before we, we leave, uh, Fausto Grassini, who, who has died uh, from COVID at age 60, a, a more general question about, first of all, um, and, and we haven't got a lot of time to discuss this because, rightly, we spent speaking about Fausto's legacy, and you rightly say the word legacy. Um, where do Aprilla go from here with the team? And, and which way does this take it? And a, and a, a second follow-up to that, I suppose, is with Davide Brivio and Fausto now out of the paddock for two very different reasons, of course. Um, where does this leave Mortal GP? Start with, with Aprilla. Well, look at 
the structure he's had to build that it, that he can in no way have been hands on at every level, which indicates to me that his understanding and nurturing of talent in the paddock and on, on the track is second to none. So I, to be honest, I don't really have a a great deal of doubt that April is going to continue to move forward. They've they've made a lot of progress. Uh, over the last, particularly, we, we saw a lot of it towards the uh, the end of, of last season. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, I, I It'll be interesting to see how his broader uh, programs develop with without him at, at the tiller. But uh, I, I genuinely, uh, looking at how he moved forward and, and, the, his philosophies that were injected into everything he did and how he moved forward after the death of Cato and the death of Simoncelli. I weirdly think the same thing is going to happen with yes. Prilla is that we're going to see all the, and the greatest legacy he will leave will be how they perform and, and the structures he's put in place to allow them to continue to perform. Weirdly. Uh, yeah. I think that the paddock is, is much worse off without, uh, Fausto and without uh, Davide Brivio uh, I'll be it's less rich interested. in so many ways yes. and I don't mean that in the financial sense obviously and I'm massively curious and I don't know the answer with Suzuki mm. I'm really curious as to wait uh, he's such a positive influence and he's and, and they I'm really really interested to see what happens there I don't know the answer and nobody does but uh, uh, I think structurally both of them are, are uh, perfectly positioned to keep going can I just say one thing to finish if, if uh, anybody wants to, uh, it's a sad day and it's going to continue to be sad. But if you want to keep, put a smile on your face. Just don't forget that uh, the Fortuna Honda with Marco Melandri was a, was a Grassini bike. Just go and Google Melandri and Philip Island and yeah. think of think of Fausto as you watch him burn the tire up through the last corner with his fing- wagging his finger in the air. It's one of the things that makes me most happy as a, and I'm well enough thinking about it. It makes me unbelievably happy to watch the joy that Melandri had for that win. And if you think about it, imagine what the joy was like for Grassini on the pit wall. And I think it's one of the most iconic moments in the history of the sport. And I think of Fausto. Fausto Grassini, literally the end of an era. Declan Brennan uh, talking about the great man who sadly succumbed to COVID at age just 60. So much more to give, but so much still to come. Uh, from the Grassini name, I feel. And uh, Nick Damon, you've been uh, listening to Declan's uh, reminiscences. There, anything to add? Um, it was in fairness to, to John and Declan, they they covered the the great man's um, stellar career particularly well. I mean, I think you know, thank it's, you. It's a, an incredible legacy, and it and it's it, you know, it, it it tinged with tragedy and even an incredibly tragic way it ended, but also mm. success. It's it's a sort of thing that if you saw it in a film, you wouldn't believe it. I I think, uh, particularly for Dex and I, it, because it was so much a part of us getting involved in motor racing, in, in motorcycle racing, and being really interested in motorcycle racing, um, I'm just looking still at the stuff I had up there whilst I was talking to Dex, and I'm I I'm pretty certain I I saw Grassini's final. Um, race win which was at Donington Park um, yeah uh, uh, let me scroll back up to here uh, I think it was 
Oh, stand by. 2002? Something like oh, that? Oh, wow. Really late. T- 2002. I, I think I took my GSX 750 to Donington Park for my first ever um, MotoGP weekend. And yes, it was. Uh, sorry, uh, 1992. 1992. Oh, well, I was, was going to say, 2002 seemed very late. Seemed late. No. No. no, well, there you are, John. We, we were at the same place and didn't know each other because I went to. I wouldn't have talked to you. You GPs. had those. You you had those those leathers on with the pink on them. They weren't pink. There's no pink on my leathers. There was pink on my gloves because they were very expensive gloves, but they got the discount bin because they're the wrong colour. I I I had my black and dark purple to 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 match the. Actually, I might not have even had that bike then. I think I still had my GSX 750, so I probably I, I probably didn't even have a. Um, a one-piece suit in those days. Um, I, I, it's it's odd when you look back at stuff like that. I've, I've got the Motorsport magazine um, all bit open to them. That's where I've just pulled that from. Got the MotoGP as well. F- a set of fantastic, uh, if fant- a set of fantastic articles on the MotoGP uh, site uh, as well. Um, not the only bad news, I'm afraid. Uh, for uh, as far as uh, deaths are concerned, with the news uh, that Chris Craft has died as well. Uh, touring car and latterly sports car driver inextricably linked uh, with Ford Motor Company in Anglias and, and Cortinas in the mid to late 1960s before uh, moving up into single-seaters, ran a techno uh, in uh, his... Uh, career as well he he shared an escort 1300 gt with roger clark to win their class in the nurburgring six hours uh chevron b8 lola t70 mark three in 1967 uh linked with broad speed of course went into formula 5000 in 1970 but that project really didn't work out for them Chevron again in 1971. David Piper's Porsche 917 in 1972. And a T292 in 1973's European 2-litre sports prototype. Uh, did did win championship and, and took that number one plate to a bar for 1974 for the 2-litre season. Uh, and then back to saloon cars in the late 70s with Caprice. Uh, Gordon Spice, of course, won the T uh, the, uh, the RSE Tourist Trophy, finished fourth in the Spa 24 hours, uh, and played a huge part in the development of the Dome Zero RL Sports prototype, uh, which uh, he was a great development driver, and uh, came third in the Brands Hatch 1000 case in 1981 with Derek Bell in a BMW M1. Raced his last race, he went out in style in 1984 at Le Mans in a 9.56 with Alan Decadnier and Alan Grice. That would have been a party. Uh, his engine failed on Sunday morning when Chris was at the wheel. Uh, Jill, his wife and son Luke have our condolences as do all the friends of Chris Craft, who has also died this week. Uh, Nick, you mentioned uh, pink gloves earlier, or John mentioned pink gloves, uh, and you yes. kind of denied them. Uh, what else? No, is... no, no. They no, were, he had they denied pink, pink leathers. What, what else uh, is going to be slightly pink again this year? Well, we don't know that. We just know that it's going to have the initials BWT on it, which is the cognizant 
Aston Martin, Aston Martin Green, Cognizant Green. Um, BWT apparently were pitching around uh, some of the smaller teams to see if they could paint them pink. Didn't come to an agreement and they are going to be featured on the Aston Martin. In what style and what colour? We'll have to wait for the, for the launch, I think is next week, isn't it? Was it the back end of the week, the following week? Yes. I think Aston Martin are wishing they'd steered in uh, with a... a a, a, a endurance racing team now where they see everybody else <laughs> nice. the, the last thing they wanted they chuffed a bits to be in F1 <laughs> mm, possibly well somebody else is paying I suppose mm. that's the the best way to do any form of motor racing as I can test <laughs> don't don't forget that this is the first flush and there will be some people who will fall out and then some people who will come in not a great huge amount of tweets which we'll get to later on about um, what they think the grid is going to look like. Everybody likes the fact that Ferrari's in. There's a huge range of opinion about whether a complete prototype grid um, would work for Le Mans um, or whether there has to be GT cars. All I'm going to say is go and look back in the glory days at Group C when there was two, three, four, barely GT cars, actually. And then there. go and look back at the years which followed every single period of dominance of prototypes. Very true, Tim. You you are very true. The the difference being that the the regs changed, um, and because there there weren't always privateer cars. It's going to be privateer cars. It is everything cyclical. Everything is is cyclical. Um, we've got uh, Nick who stayed with us. So shall we do a bit more Formula One news? Uh, we shall. And the uh, pinkness was uh, part of that story or part of that return to Formula 1. But there are other Formula 1 stories because there have been a number of launches this week. Some of them are cars which uh, look very much like uh, last year's equivalents and some teams who've clearly been throwing their jetons around. Oh, there's been a jeton spree. Um, (laughs) A little French um, joke for those of you who got it. It means talking, by the way. I have my car for jetons. Jeté, of course, is the uh, verb to throw. Yes, very good. Yes, I thought Jet was where uh, boats docked. Um, <laughs> no, it's a, anyway, it's yes, a so, um, Volkswagen, isn't it? Very good. Yeah. Everyone's could got go on two forever. Um, to adjust a bit of their car, apart from the aforementioned Aston Martin cognizant Formula One team, or Aston Martin, who got a free rear end, ooh-er, um, because they buy their rear end as a and gearbox as a block from Mercedes, they can take uh, that as a free pass. However, interestingly. Um, Alpha Tauri decided not to do it and stick with what they knew, even though they could have taken a version of Red Bull's rear end. However, interestingly, uh, Red Bull themselves, who launched yesterday, have spent their jetons on a new rear end. So you kind of think that perhaps that's why they haven't bothered Alpha Tauri haven't bothered taking it, because obviously it's something that Red Bull thought could be improved. Um, obviously, the point about that being, with most of the aerodynamic changes being to the floor at the rear of the car, changing the way the rear suspension interacts with that air is obviously quite important. So that's probably why they've able to concentrate on that. Um, Alfa Romeo, who I think improved their paint scheme slightly, they're subtly different, but it's a little bit nicer on the old, but obviously a Sauber. They've bought a new nose, so it's rhinoplasty mm. cost them uh, uh, two tokens, and I can't remember. What, I can't uh, help. And a front wing talk- as well. I I oh, yeah, I, I, I can't help when you talk about it's cost them two tokens. I can't help but thinking of my trips to the Spanish city, uh, in in Whitley Bay, and and you know trying to win enough to get 
the goldfish in the bowl or oh, the big yes. teddy bear or mm. whatever it was you were going after and, and going several times and keeping your tokens together. And I just want to know which Formula One team later on this week is going to launch with a big teddy bear or a goldfish in a bowl. That's, you know. Well, something to look out for for all the eagle eye amongst you. Um, <laughs> Aston Martin, yeah, I, I I'm looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's it. I think, I think you know, it's green and now it's got um, a couple of tickets on the site. But the thing is, of course, the Jeton, of course, is much more in the uh, the British Amusement Arcade is the collection of the tickets, isn't it? That's what you collect there. Yep. They file out. I've, I've, I've sat there, um, as you say, trying to collect tickets and spending £75, or something worth three quid, but feeling very much like I'd won at the end when I got it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when, when you got something that was worth about £4.75. Yeah. Yes. I may have been playing that camel race game all day, spent £37 in it, but I've won a £1 stuffed toy. Who's the winner here? <laughs> Very good. Very good. Moving on. Uh, what is going to look vastly different this year? The calendar. No. Um, mm-hmm. Well, not the Red Bull, because they've literally just taken the sticker saying Aston Martin off and stuck a new sticker saying Honda on. They, they, given the fact that it's a dynamic, go-ahead, super amazing marketing-led company, they really have the most boring colour schemes. Uh, on the car. They're um, being consistent. Pardon? They're being consistent, Nick. But, no, they're just being unimaginative. You don't have to change every that. year. Look at Honda in the uh, McLaren in the 80s. Uh, that's true, but that was Same colour scheme for a decade. Yes, but there was a different, was a different world there. Different world. Now, you know, we're in the instant, instant gratification world. We can't have a seven-year colour scheme. We need something slightly different from... Uh, people can't remember that, clearly from the tweets, people can't remember the days when there was very little no um, GT cars at the moment, but there were still 27 classes. And they're, they're worried about not having a class in GT Le Mans, that, that, uh, GTE, um, that nobody is wants to winding... Enter. That, that none of the factories want to enter anymore. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, just, just wrenching it back to Jetons, I don't know where, what everyone else has used theirs for. Um, everyone's been quite forthcoming so far in saying what it is, so that's quite interesting. No one's hiding their Jetons spin. Perhaps they had to declare it so everyone knows already. Yeah, or maybe they're just scared of Sam Collins. He'll yes. find out. He'll find out. Sam, Sam Collins at Andrew Cotton. Uh, we'll we'll find out. Uh, uh, thanks, by the way, to all of our guests, particularly Andrew, who jumped in um, for our top story at very late notice, because obviously it only broke this afternoon. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the thing that's going to look vastly different is uh, Sergio Perez's helmet. Oh, right, well, because well, it's Red Bull sponsored now, and not pink elements. It's going to go... It's got a lot of green on it. Fluorescent green. Do you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, and I know I do sound old fuddy-duddy at this. I really don't get this thing of changing your helmet colours every five minutes. I, I, surely, you have a... It's part of your brand, isn't it? And given that we've got a situation where people hold on to their numbers now because it's part of their brand, wouldn't you think they would hold on to their helmet design as well? You're right. It's the only thing you can actually see most of the time. So Fairly, I, yes. I don't either. I mean, yeah, perhaps do a one different one a, a year for a celebration or a you know a competition. But surely I, I you don't think it needs to be look I, every time. I don't think it needs to be mandated or rules on it, Nick. No, no, no. I no, just no. think it doesn't make any sense. It's, I, 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 you know, I don't think that we have to spend our time at the World Motorsport Council saying to the drivers, this is when and how and how many times and under what circumstance yeah. you can change your helmet. I just don't understand why they do it when Lewis wants to keep his forty-four. And, you know, everybody else wants to keep their numbers. That's the only one I can remember, so it's clearly not working. I, I can tell you right now, if I ever became world uh, 
drivers champion, I would take the number one. Mm. I, you know, it's, it obviously might happen in the next few years, but if it did, that's that's. I, I feel that's a bit of bit of unfortunate tradition avoiding, to be honest. And I think I, I, don't, I don't believe that Lewis. And this is nothing anti-Lewis. It's the same when Sebastian Vettel did it as well. They don't need the extra money from the cap sales, and, and they should have the one on the car. Actually, I think Vettel did actually, in fairness to him. Uh, they should have the one on the car. Moving He's on. World champion. Uh, a bit of calendar news. Oh, you Ooh. do like a nice calendar, don't you? Because uh, obviously this year's Australian Grand Prix has moved to November. Yeah. And yes. anticipating its uh, possible success, the Australian uh, Grand Prix uh, Commission has uh, announced that it wants to be in November every year. Really? Hmm. Well, they don't want to be the first race anymore. They are mm. they are thinking about it apparently, but they Obviously, can't be the last race though, can they? Because um, Abu Dhabi, it, it, part of their contract is that they are the last race. Well, it was part I of see. a contract. Whether or not since Abu Dhabi's renewed, it is still part of the contract. So I'm That's a fair point. Don't know. Obviously, I would assume the Bahrain will pay for the privilege being first. It costs uh, Melbourne a lot of money to be first, whereas uh, slotting in towards the end might not cost them so much i think it's yes there will be a there is obviously a premium being first or last um i must admit i, I must admit i'm sure the teams would much rather go only as far as bahrain for the first race just for, for, for pure logistics of getting stuff about mm. especially uh, next year everything's brand new yeah as part of uh, this uh, it would mean that the moto gp race at phillip island would move to the start of the year uh, so they didn't uh, overburden the end of the calendar with in the state of Victoria, which is so what happened. World Superbikes do, don't they? Well, not in, well, not this year, but normally World Superbikes yeah. did, did start. But well, as as in, in in related calendar news, World Superbikes, of course, last week postponed the start of their season, mm. so they're That's not starting theoretically until the first week of May. Sorry, the second weekend of May, seventh and ninth of May, at port in Portugal, subject to confirmation. Um, I did. I, I did. Well, no, I just checked. I, oddly, when I had a couple of minutes earlier, I checked to see what the situation in Portugal was, and they've seen a massive improvement in their problems. So they've gone from being having a tremendous issue uh, two months ago to now being um, per capita a number eight in Europe for issues. So likely, because they've put the right, right things in for the um, pandemic, they may well actually be okay. Are we going to have to, before calendar news, now run the swinging symbol and do the top 20 countdown uh, for places <laughs> in the world that we yes. need to go no, to? No, 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 absolutely. Because if you look at Portugal, was a pariah mm. six weeks I ago. I know, I know. And now, Down from number one last quite week quite to number place. eight. Yes. And now I check the numbers and they're fine. Uh, well, relatively. Obviously, no, 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 they are improving. They're, they're going in the right direction. Yes, exactly. No, the, I know that. Um, I know that. GT Open, uh, which is due to shed, uh, start its uh, season in Portugal uh, two months today, in fact, I believe, um, uh, it's also got no plans to uh, uh, move or postpone. No, well, when's the when's the uh, WEC supposed to be there? Where? Portugal. Easter weekend, first and second of April. Yes, yeah, so that's even, that's only what six weeks away. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Might happen now. My 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 won't happen. Won't happen. With the, won't happen with the crowd. But the won't happen bit is now fading. Going back to uh, Australia, uh, Australian Grand Prix Corporation Chairman Andrew Westercott said, I can't emphasise highly enough that there's nothing definitive about the calendar in 2022. (laughs) Yeah, or 2021. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I was just talking to somebody today that I I, I won't name, but 
um, we was we were seeing that the 2021 calendar is probably even in some ways less obviously secure um, than it was last year because we just had a big break last year. Now everybody's waiting to see if they can get started. Mm. Motorsport UK, by the way, um, formerly the artist formerly known as the RACM Motorsports Association, um, and not the ITV television programme, they um, have said that from the 29th of March in England, mm. we can go back racing again. Yes, and from May, they can have crowds, can't they, outside? Apparently so. Very small ones. And from 21st Apparently. of June, all bets are off. So, interesting, the 2nd to the 4th of July was the UK round of the World Superbikes. Theoretically, you can have a full house at Donington. The uh, Silverstone uh, Formula 1 British Grand Prix, which is also in July... Uh, Silverstone said today that uh, it's not out of the question to have a full paying crowd. It's not. If, if things go as they're supposed to go, then apparently 21st of June, everything's okay in this country. Well, again, relatively sub subclause, subclause, everything else. But right. yeah. Asterisk on all of that. Moving on, have you got any more F1 news or can we do a few tweets? I have. Uh, just one last story. Excellent. <laughs> it involves music, of course. No. I'm not expecting John to identify this, so it's all down to you, Nick. I recognise, but I don't know what it is. Oh, it's a It is, yes. Yeah, I need your that playout hey, machine. I think your playout machine cable is a bit dodgy. Tonight. No, it's the fader. That's the fader, is it? That's yeah, what it was. Need to scrape well, some well, WD40. Tell me how Hollyoaks fits in with F1. Of course, it's a it's a cul-de-sac. Uh, where that the whole load of uh, okay, right, sorry. Say, the, how much do I know about Channel Four soap operas? Not a lot. Channel but uh, you will remember Ollie Oaks, though, won't you? Ollie Oaks, very um, good. Ollie yes. Oaks, the old casting champion, wasn't he? Yeah, he was very and, good at casting. Uh, John commentated on him in uh, Formula Renault. Yes, I did many years in ago in a different lifetime. Yes. Uh, and you all know what he's doing now, don't you? I have no idea, actually, no. He's he's not driving anymore, is he? He's not. He's running a racing team. Ah, OK, right. I didn't. Oh. I, I have to say, I did not know that. Uh, he runs High Tech Grand Prix, which uh, is okay. uh, in Formula 2 and Formula 3, and uh, Formula mm. Woman. Uh, not Formula 1, what's it called? W Series. Oh, well done. Phew, <laughs> well done. <laughs> None of, none of you could remember either, I know. Um, and this week he has uh, said that uh, criticism of Nikki Tomasi Pan is unfair. Really? Yes. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on it. I'm sorry. I just, I'm not. Can well, I do it? Can I do it? Isn't it really? If it's criticism of his driving, yeah, it's unfair. If it's criticism of other things, just, it's probably fair. I just don't want to get involved. Um... Can I can I do a NASCAR related story for you especially, Tim? Oh yes. Uh, this is the Bush name a NASCAR race for a dollar competition. It's the Bush Ooh. name this race four hundred. I kid you not. Sadly, only open to U.S. residents. So we're not going to get racing at race face then. Sure. No, well, we're giving you the opportunity to name the NASCAR Cup Series race at Kansas Speedway. On the 2nd of the 5th, although it says the 
5th of February, so obviously that's already happened. Um, in support of the American farmers, submit your race name, make a $1 donation to the farm rescue at bush.com forward slash race name by the 3rd of March. Let the names begin. So, some of your made-up names from last week, mm-hmm. would I think, should be submitted for that. The Bush name this race 400. Okay. Oh, name this race in three. Exactly. <laughs> well, before Somebody's going to say though. Rob or Stuart. <laughs> Barry the race. Stuart. Barry, the... Yes. Absolute. She has just sent me, uh, give me your choice and I'll submit your name. All right, listen, I've got to do a few tweets before we do anything else because they've been flooding in um, about the future of the Le Mans grid. Dave Alcock says, and this is, this. I, I'm going to start with this because it's really positive. Who would have th- ever thought this would be a question we'd be asking four or five years ago? Surely what we should be doing is giving credit to the ACO and IMSA for coming up for a solution and giving us this, quote, prototype problem. I do see Le Mans as the pinch point with limited grid places. Don't forget, they're going to knock down, allegedly, they're going to knock down the current pit building totally and rebuild it. They need far more than 60 uh, uh, garages. Andy Lally says, GT disappearing not in a million years. GT cars will forever be the roots and strength of endurance racing, always be the biggest class with the most variety of manufacturers. LMH is just the next prototype class that will fight the never-ending battle of pricing itself out of existence. I, I, I think Andy has a point in the States, um, certainly with GT Daytona, which runs the GT3 regs. Current GT3, I keep saying, without a proper set of technical regulations, you can't take it to Le Mans because it will start an arms race and it will kill the class because the Le Mans victory is so valuable. Um, new GT3, maybe. The biggest problem that everybody's going to have to decide is by the time you've given WEC entrance, your entry to Le Mans. By the time you've given the top ELMS which, remember, stays at the moment at the top-class LMP2, and I don't see there's any uh, change in that coming shortly. By the time you give them some entries, the other automatic entries, you are up to 50-plus entries at Le Mans. And what is the point of having a GT-class, whatever the GTs is, whether it's 1979 Austin Allegro's, it, it doesn't matter if there's only five or six of them there. You might as well just take more prototypes. Uh, a lot of people talk about split races. Um, and uh, Stuart Hart says, who's to say LMP2 will remain the top class in ELMS? And if we do reach a point where there's garage space worries, we'll see a fundamental shift away from P2 to hypercar for top private air teams. Could we see 20 to 30 hypercars at the month? I think we could. I, I, I don't disagree, Stuart. But, you, but as long as LMP2 remains, and remember, LMP2 is the ACO's class on which LMDH is, is built, and that has a 10-year guaranteed homologation from when the new one starts, and it hasn't started yet. A lot of people talk about split-class races. You can't have two 24 hours of Le Mans. Uh, it works in IMSA for some of the races where we have GTs as the top category and no prototypes there, uh, particularly on some of the tighter, twistier tracks. The advantage there is you bring everybody back together for the big blue band endurance races. If you can't do that at Le Mans... I'm not sure there's very much point in having the GT races as part of those regional championships. If you get enough people interested in P2 uh, and LMP3, why don't you just make 
ELMS, a P2 and LMP3 championship. There's plenty of GT3 championships around the world that people can go and race in. And that's fine at national and sort of regional level. You just can't take that current rule set or lack of rule set to uh, Le Mans. Uh, Ferrari are doing F1 and Le Mans. Why can't Aston Martin, says Matthew, potentially way to redeploy workers from uh, the Mercedes AMG Formula One team? Uh, somebody, by the way, suggested AMG that will be running and owning Aston Martin soon could stand for Aston Martin Garages, which I really like. Really, really like. Uh, Alan Prosser has, con- uh, uh, has confessed to gaming uh, arcade machines in the 2000s. I recognise the type of sensor to detect the basketball passing through it as being the same type as the DVD and Xbox packing machine I ran. We had lots of tickets because I could reach the sensor. <laughs> very good. Oh, very good. I bet you were a ball of fun and everybody wanted uh, to know you. Um, and... Just uh, we could do a whole program on this. I suspect that as we I get more news from Ferrari, that we'll be doing <laughs> more than that. Uh, a lot of people saying, "Why should GT teams get thrown out of Le Mans because of one new manufacturer or a couple of new manufacturers in prototype?" Don't forget, Porsche and Ferrari and probably Corvette are going to move classes from the GT category into the top class, LMP1 or whatever it's going to be called, eventually. That that leaves nobody. All right, there's still a good L, uh, LM, uh, GTE, AM category at the moment, but if there's somewhere else for those people to go, LMP2 AM, there you go. And everybody's racing prototypes. Just saying. Um, if you really want to put a, a, another class in, put LMP3 in, which is the same sort of pace. It's between an LM... Uh, GTE car and a GT3 car and they're pretty good for gentlemen drivers so I, I don't know uh, add spec entertainment right we're eating into the time of Paul Tarsi and the rest of the team for historic racing mm. news thanks to all of our guests tonight it's a standard HRN this week their next special is in I think March the 10th March sometime the 10th. yeah uh, for the next what's on tomorrow uh, yes you can uh, it's tomorrow at 8 o'clock. It's the Simcast. Uh, and this week it will be Lewis and Ben. And they're going to be talking about more developments in the uh, EA P- Codemasters purchase. Uh, some stuff about motorcycles and the NASCAR iRacing series. Excellent. Which wasn't at uh, all that- controversial in any way last night. Not at all, no. Uh, and that's followed by Creelsey and the team. Uh, Shebeck still recovering from his knee replacement surgery. That's on the grid at nine. So two more great programmes tonight. Stay tuned for historic racing news. No time to explain because the Llama is looking for a grid spot. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. For more, subscribe to Midweek Motorsport wherever you get your podcasts.